Where will you begin your long story, or rather your many stories that overlook each other like the rooms of an old Arab house? You don't know exactly, because the years and events, the faces and voices are mixed up in your memory. The officers who questioned you at the National Security Agency imposed a sequence of events on you, one that might be better organized from a chronological point of view. But you cannot use the records lying in the drawer assigned to you in that star-shaped stone building. Besides, those cold bureaucratic records are not interested in your inner world, your motives, what lies between the superimposed layers of yourself. Those records contain no monologues, no waking dreams, no nightmares, no echoes, no convolutions, only uniformity, a regularity, a linear sequence of events and names. Where among them, where among them can you find your mother's soft footsteps at night? as she hovers over the blankets spread on the floor, covering this son or that daughter, opening or closing the windows, rising before anyone else in the morning so that they can wake to the smell of coffee and fresh bread? Where is your father's tall, lean frame, a cigarette hanging from his lip, and his inks, pens, and calligraphies that explore the expanses of creation? Where are his leisurely footsteps as he descends the twelve steps to his underground temple? Where are your noisy brothers and kindly sisters? Where is your grandmother's winged shadow and your grandfather sitting up straight as a bolt who stopped writing out those proverbs and sayings when his eyesight started to fade? Where are the faces that somehow imprinted their features on your memory forever and the faces whose details have been erased and whose ghostly passage across the screen of your memory keeps you awake at night? Where are the smells that mysteriously preserve the images and feelings you secretly treasure? Where are the pavements, the cold, life when it became just a lucky coincidence, the skies as low as a wall of grey, the long sleepless nights, the cough, the stubborn hopes, the dancing lights of return? There's nothing of all that in those reports. So dry the paper crinkles, because those are things that don't interest them. These things are useless when the accounts are settled and the harvest is weighed. You didn't answer some of the interrogator's questions, or you responded vaguely and coldly to the questions that no longer interested you. In short, that was the version of the story they wanted, to fill the gaps in their files, not your rambling, tangled story. Um, that was an excerpt uh, from Amjad Nassar's Land of No Rain, an autobiographical novel uh, by the late great uh, Jordanian poet and writer, uh, read by Marsha Lynx Quayley, and I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is episode uh, 39 of the Bulak podcast. We're recording it uh, between Rabat and Amman. I'm in the studio of uh, the Sot podcast network, and uh, Marsha is at home. <laughs> with a good with a good mic um, and uh, in the quietest corner I think that you can find um, and so to, and today we're going to be talking about Nassar and his work and sort of paying tribute to it um, and then uh, we are also going to be talking about a couple uh, famous contemporary Moroccan writers and um, looking at, critically actually at um, the the role and the discourse that they have sort of uh, occupied uh, recently in some public debates over personal freedom. 
Um, so that's the show. Uh, and um, that was lovely. That was lovely. It reminded me how much I liked that book. I Yeah, I remember when the... The book came out in 2010, I think. It came out uh, as part of the Bloomsbury-Qatar relationship, so I suspect it is now out of print. I couldn't quite tell. You can still buy copies on Amazon, but uh, they're all, I think, used copies. So unfortunately, I think people should get the remaining copies while they can. Um, I, I believe there, there are still many more of his works to come, uh, so... So Amjad, or Yahya, as however you prefer to remember him, left us at the end of October of this year after a long struggle with brain cancer. Um, He was born in 1955, and his real name, (laughs) which he was never sort of shy about telling anyone, um, uh, I know his his email came from his sort of his uh, birth name, Yahya which was how he signed his early work in in the 1970s when he was still living in Jordan. Um, and, and then he, you know, he, uh, he initially, um, uh, he was born sort of on, in, in a village of called Turra on the uh, Jordanian-Syrian border, although he grew up outside Amman. And uh, he... He became a, a Marxist quite young, uh, a, a, around the same time that he began publishing and uh, his poetry. He also wrote for, a, he, there's this beautiful um, long biography on him that it, he, oh, while he was, while he was with us, he, he wrote a lot of autobiographical, semi-autobiographical works. And and I guess, at least in my mind, these works all, always kind of overlapped with his real life. And and I, uh, I was never quite sure where one started and the other ended. But in, in Heber, the Jordanian magazine, there's a lovely long piece by Amar al-Shukari, which I urge people to read about... Um, about uh, Amjad slash Yasser's, uh, sorry, slash Yahya, uh, is real life. Um, and, and it, it, he talks with his brother Ahmed and, um, and other people to, to create a, a portrait of his life between his early times in, in Jordan and then his travels, how he arrived in Beirut, how he, he took up arms during the Lebanese civil war. Very briefly, I think, as a number of writers did. I'm not, I don't remember if Elias Khoury actually ever, I think he did take up arms during the Lebanese Civil War also. Um, I'm not sure, but I mean, he was certainly, uh, you know, affiliated with the with the Palestinian side, if you can say, I mean, there were so many different sides. I mean, the sides changed, but, but, but originally, and he he was nearly killed. He was like fortuitously not assassinated. Like they came for him. Right. And I, I, uh, um, Amjad slash Yahya was also, uh, you know, clearly, um, a partisan of Palestinian liberation. And this was, you know, his interest in the, uh, in the civil war, um, in, in, uh, in Beirut. And then, you know, he traveled around a lot, which is echoed in Land of No Rain, which is sort of spun from this contemporary position in, uh, the city of the, uh, 
gray and the red, which is which is London, where there's a plague on and and people are dying. Um, and and there's this terrible scene that I was rereading where he's going to visit his wife who's dying of the plague. And um, I, I mean, it's just, it's hard to read in the context of, of his, his own death. But, and, and it, you know, where he's stopped by these thugs who, um, who rob, who take what he has and they're not satisfied with it and they want his wedding ring, but his, his finger's too swollen to get it off and they're about to um, cut off his finger to get the wedding ring. And it was so, it was like overlapping the Lebanese civil war inside London during this plague time, but also this moment of coming to terms with with death, which he wrote about a lot in the in the last decade of his life, long before he had to con- come to terms with his wife's or his own death. You know, I don't remember that scene at all, but that just goes to show. I mean, I remember the. You know, I, I must have read the book. When it first came out, it's translated by Jonathan Wright. Um, I, I remember thinking it's very beautifully written and very evocative. And like, but all I remember is more the stuff set when he in the in the in the unnamed country, which is clearly Jordan, more or less, where, where, that he goes back to. Um, yes, and well, I, yeah. There's there's beautiful scenes in all these countries that he lived in. And I remember talking to Jonathan about it because Jonathan also reported from a number of the same, his life kind of echoed or mirrored Amjad's in, in some ways. Uh, they they worked as reporters in, in similar countries in similar times. I, 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 Jordan was always so important to him. He went after he got this diagnosis of brain cancer, he went back to Jordan, which is where he died. Um, well, it, it, he he got the diagnosis. He went through chemotherapy. The doctor told him there was nothing to be done. And he wrote these, this cycle of poems that he published on Facebook about that that was tremendously moving. Um, then he went back to Jordan and, according to his brother, wrote like uh, a fiend the whole mm. time he was there in the last months of his life and and in this in this piece in Heber, it says that all those those pieces are yet to come they will be published um you know it's so i mean that situation of having a diagnosis and writing kind of against that deadline is I mean, so the Syrian playwright Sada Lawanous was almost in exactly the same situation. He had a cancer diagnosis and he wrote furiously in the last several years of his life. And even someone like Mahmoud Darwish, right, had those couple near-death experiences. He had heart trouble, I think, and, and wrote poetry at the end of his life about the end of his life, about contemplating his own death. Yeah, and for some reason, my uh, instinct would be, oh, you know, it's these writings would be harried; they wouldn't be worth reading. But actually, in all the cases <laughs> that we've mentioned, they've been some of, luminous and beautiful, and sort of lit with from within. Some with of the this. best, some of the best work in, of their careers. In fact, I mean, yeah, that seems to be the critical consensus of very strong works. I know it seems like you wouldn't have the clarity, you would panic, but 
but uh, that's what's kind of uh, awe-inspiring about it. Yeah, so I I'm greatly anticipating these works from from Amjad whenever I don't know who is taking on the work of of collecting them and editing them and publishing them, but um, but I'm we'd like to know. Looking forward to them. <laughs> yes, I mean he wrote in so many, also so many genres when he was alive. Uh, he, of course, he started out as a poet, and as a student, he started out as a very traditional poet. Um, and and then he, you know, under the influence of work like Badr Shekhar Sayyab and and Saidi uh, Yusuf, he uh, he turned towards you know what's called prose poetry or or this sort of you know unrhymed, unmetered poetry. Um, but then he also wrote in Whoa. all these other genres, in, including travel writing, and uh, and, and then wrote three novels towards the end of at least we we don't know what else he's written um we'll link of course to all the poetry of his that is available in translation um and 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 perhaps also to some of it in in arabic it's available online i enjoyed in the in the work of his that i have it in translation i find the way he evokes how far he traveled like how like this the poems that are about sort of being in London but thinking about his childhood in like the Jordanian countryside like these big motions in space and time are done really well and that's a kind of you know universally evocative I think experience to sort of to sort of concentrate into a poem you're like consciousness of time? Yes, definitely. So my favorite work of his, which I've never managed to write about or find a way to write about or a place to write about, is Petro, which is this series of poems he wrote for an art gallery, actually. Um, and they were published in, I think, seven different languages simultaneously, uh, the original Arabic that he wrote them in, as well as um, a, a, a number of translations into other languages, including Fadi Judah's translation to in, into English. And then that was separated out and published as just this little chapbook with an illustration of Petra on the on the front that I, I just, I love this tiny little book. And it it does, um, it it's it's funny because it's another one of those things like a poetic commission. Now, for some reason, I would think that this would be, I don't know, terrible for some reason. But it is a, 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 as if poetry must only come from, I don't know, the the deep inner self. As if having a prompt, writers. as if having a prompt of some kind <laughs> makes it less um, sort of creative. But but perhaps no, like like all of us, sometimes it's really useful to kind of be given a particular, you know, frame or prompt or. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a pretty broad one. I, I think he was only, I, I believe he was only told to write about Petra. Um, and so it does move. It is this kind of um, genre. I don't know who else writes in it of travel poetry where he he moves through the whole history of of the site which is uh, i don't know probably jordan's most 
significant historical site, um, as well as through different vi- different um, people's visions of it in different times. You know, colonial when, when it was discovered. You know, different colonial visions of it. Um, his his own personal vision of it. Uh, the local people's visions of it, um, a- a- and the ways in which he continually comes back to it and unfolds it for us. I have, I've actually never been to Petra, uh, never somehow made the time for it, but I feel as though from, from walking through the valley to reach the site and seeing it unfold both through sort of time and space that I have experienced it through his, through his uh, writing about it. I, I feel a sort of intimacy with it that I don't, I, I'm not sure what other place, certainly no other place that I've never been, I, I feel about. That sounds lovely. You got to go. I mean, you got to reread it one more time and, and go to Petra. <laughs> no? <laughs> I, I, I guess, I guess I, I probably do. It stands as this strange sort of monument in my head at this, at this point. Um, I actually, I, I, now I'm going to, I haven't been yet either. Oh, I do think that that this is. Um, I, I I feel I I don't I don't actually know why the guy commissioned this uh, the art gallery owner, a- and it is in this big kind of hardback coffee table type book, but I feel like it's something that should be sold in tourist shops for people to read um, as they're you know on on the bus or well I mean I I get nauseous on the bus while reading but you know for people to read the night before that they they go. Yeah, I mean, personally, sort of my favorite thing in the world is to read and then travel, like combine going places and reading about places at the same time. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look for this. Yeah, it's I mean, for me, this is a kind of a bizarre experience because I, you know, I read Mafuth and then I traveled to Cairo fairly soon after. Uh, you know, this is something I've been carrying around since, I don't know, I mean, almost a decade, could it be, um, with, without having ever gone to Petra. So, But I, I'm looking forward to that Proustian experience when I finally do. Yeah, well, so next time you're, you're here, we have to go. Yeah, absolutely. So do you mind if I read a little bit from Petra? No, of course, of course. Go ahead. Okay, and this is in Fedi Judah's translation. Early signatures of what awaits us in this wandering pilgrimage will be met in El Sikh. The signs prepare us with cunning and seduction for the coming shock. A feeling of suffocation will alternate with one of relief. The air can be completely still, standing over the head like a mass, and it can suddenly rise like a fan. The water that tells of life also tells of the place. Those canals that used to deliver clear water from springs that burst outside the city, we will soon see them almost as they were, except they are dry now. That's what killed the city. That was its Achilles' heel. Before the rose, sudden, before the sudden rose bloomed in front of us like a desert dawn all at once, we had no clue as to where and what El Sikh would lead us but we knew something mysterious awaited us. But what? El-Sikh says, be patient. Persist for your eyes and feet 
to deserve this journey's exhaustion. The road will lengthen between light and shadow. The sky will disappear, then gesture. Yet the journey isn't without a guide. Stare at the high fissure above the shocking fissure that you might see. All who wrote about Petra imagined it as female. A pagan goddess like the morning star, a queen in a golden chariot pulled by four horses, a young shepherdess guiding a herd of goats, a Bedouin woman weaving an endless mat, a queen daughter of a queen. The feminine metaphor is ready at the tips of their pens, just as I did in discussing Al-Sikh. Still, others wanted to be more contemporary in expressing a femininity that is difficult to pass through with ease. Some wrote about a blonde tourist who rolls up her pants and wades in a captivating mirage, or an archaeologist who impersonates at night the images of ancient queens, or a student of history whose name is that of a famous Arabic lover as she guides a team of students like a gazelle ascending to Aldir. Still, it is possible for the sensory metaphor to flip into a Sufi ramble with one ra- within one range. The sensory and the abstract merge, how wondrous in ink. Sometimes it is difficult to tell them apart. The abstract has a root hold in the sensory, perhaps a drip in the urns of utmost desire, the impossible desire, drop by drop, until vanishing. Hmm. So that's just a bit from this book-length poem, which sort of moves between approaching Petra, seeing it. it you know, it, of course, there's a there's a long approach before we actually get to see Petra and through then, these narrow canyons. Right. I mean, that's the El Sikh. I think is the name of that. These the canyons where there's there's water at the bottom and there's these super dramatic rock formations. Yeah, and so we see it both as he's approaching it and through the lens of all these other writings about it, including historical writing from um, Anglo and and Belgian, I think, and French archaeologists who approached uh, travelers, historians, and and hmm. of course other poets who have written about it. Oh, well I'll have to look for that. That that you can you can find this this poem online or you can order it. This you can order through Tavern Books uh, as a chapbook or else the whole thing also exists inside this collection that Khaled Matawa and Fadi Judah both translated different poems and it was all smushed together in one collection. For some reason I don't like that big collection. It's like different poems from different stages in Amjad's life and career. I prefer them to kind of be separate and to breathe on their own. Um, but you can, I mean, it's I, it's more financially responsible to get this one collection that puts them all together. Well, maybe there's just the pleasure though in having the little tiny book you can carry around and who who says buying poetry is should be financially responsible? I mean. <laughs> there was a long period, I think, months and months that I carried this little chapbook of Petra around with me wherever I went. And if I felt, I don't know, lonely or adrift or or whatever, I would take it out and and read from it. And it kind of anchored me somehow. That's so nice. I don't read much poetry, but and I'd only read Land of No Rain, um, his 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 not his sort of autobiographical lish 
uh, novel before, but you can tell that that is written by a poet. Like you can actually tell it made sense when I found out that he was a poet because there's a sort of attention to language. Um, or I mean, not that, not that prose writers don't have an attention to language, but there just is something, um, uh, there, there, there are, there are passages that read as mini poems within it. Yeah, there's this sort of a density of the imagery, and um, maybe a, a less focus on the forward movement of the plot uh, than than you would ex- you would think that a a prose writer would do. I, I I never at any point felt stalled in the book, but I I you know I. Definitely, as he says in this introduction, it's not something that goes chronologically. These are overlapping images from different periods in his life. And 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 the thing that I remember about it, uh, and clearly, I, I you know, I don't remember everything at all. Uh, one is left with sort of impressions and feelings from, but uh, is what a good portrait it was of a police state. Like, it was very evocative. There were very evocative descriptions, like the passage that you read at the beginning, which is from during an interrogation or after an interrogation. But I also remember, and of course I can't quote it, but he had like just a description of sort of a Ministry of Interior building, um, like the atmosphere kind of, of an exile and someone who's on the outs with the with the authorities and their relationship to this country. And I don't know if he what the circumstances were under which he lived abroad for so long, but um yeah, he thought, he was he was uh, forced into exile. Um and, although towards the end of his life he was, you know, he be, of course he became a celebrated poet and writer and he did come back for a writers conference and was I think interrogated upon arrival. Mm. This last time that he came back, I imagine I I, I didn't read anything about. I, certainly, a, a man is he was he was very celebrated at the end of his life. But there was a sort of melancholy, ex- like but but very exact um, capturing of what it's like to interact with authority in that kind of a setting. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, it's um one of the few sort of poetries of police state of a police state that I that I can think of. And, and he did have these kinds of he he, <laughs> he attracted notice from all kinds of um carceral states. He, he was turned back when he he was a british citizen so supposedly when he went to the us to launch a translation of i can't remember whether it was land no i don't think it was land of no rain i think it was his poetry collection that um Khaled and, and Fedi worked on uh, when he was about to get on the plane to come to the us he was which he didn't need any special paperwork to come because at that point he was a british citizen he was pulled aside and basically told he couldn't board the plane and he could not travel to the United States with without really giving any uh, reason why. Right. He was on that inf- infamous, never-ending, you know, never-justified no-fly list kind of, blacklist he, of some kind. Yes, some kind of, he's on, he was on some kind of list 
that he was not allowed to come to the United States and spread his pernicious poetic ideas. Yeah. And the truth is the government's very far apart that supposedly have different ideologies or different interests in the end. I think actually those lists are, are, are very similar for a lot of them, are quite shared between them. Yeah, I, I imagine so. I don't know if, you know, it's it's unclear what it, what exactly if this is because of his um, involvement in in this 1970s coup or, or was it because in 1982 he took up arms in Beirut, you know, along with, come on, so many people living in Beirut at the time or what was it about? Uh, was it because he was Marxist? at this, you know, for a long period in his life. Right. Obviously, all all these systems of censorship um, and prevention exist in a, in, a, in a framework of not telling us what is taboo and not telling, often not saying what it is you're being, why you're being taken off the plane. Right. No, that's the power. That's the power they have. Exactly. There's no need to justify it, and and we'll never know. No. I, well, maybe our grandchildren will, but um, so he did the event. I think over Skype or on you know over some kind of internet link, and he appeared and introduced his poems from afar. But you know, obviously, it's not the same sort of thing as being able to talk to other poets. He talks. Um, he he did. He talked about. Um, his sort of poetic education was being part of this poetic milieu in Amman and then later in Beirut. And it was as much about writing as being being there to talk with other poets and, and developing their work. And so, you know, so, you know, the way in which the U.S. shuts it and other places shut themselves off from, from these kind of poetries is, I don't know, I feel you know, something very visceral, like cutting off a, a limb about it. Yeah. And it's, to, and it's to, it's to our loss. It's to our loss to have not had someone, um, like him be able to, to come. Um, speaking of police states, I could, <laughs> I could pivot to the second topic we were going to discuss today. Um, yeah. Because uh, there is a police state element uh, in in that one as well. Um, we were going to talk a bit about uh, two prominent Moroccan writers, uh, Tahar Ben Jaloun and Leila Slimani, uh, Moroccan writers who write in French, uh, and their sort of role as as public intellectuals and and public defenders of personal freedom. Right. Individual freedom. Individual freedom. And in Soleimani's case, uh, in particular, sort of uh, sexual freedom for for, for women and men. But, uh, you know, she speaks more from the point of view of women as as also more unfairly uh, oppressed uh, in Morocco. And and um, so this is a position that they have both... um, you know, had an advanced, it's sort of part of both of their personas. And they happen to, I think, know each other. And and um, they're both winners of the Goncourt Prize in France. Tahar Benjaloun has had a long career. Um, and Leila Simani is sort of a, a, a more recent phenomenon. She's become very successful and, and very popular and been offered sort of uh, 
official cultural ambassador positions uh, by the French government. But uh, the... um, the sort of recent development that brought them both to speak about these issues again, uh, about the issue of of freedoms in Morocco, uh, was the case of uh, this Moroccan journalist called Hajar Raisouni, who a few months ago was uh, arrested as she left her gynecologist and accused of having an abortion uh, and prosecuted for it alongside her fiancé, her doctor, her doctor's secretary, the anesthesiologist, um, a convicted of it. And then because there was a really big a hue and cry and uproar pardoned by the king and has now luckily been 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 freed. Uh, and, and you know, the, the case was egregious for, like, many reasons, uh, one of them being that abortions are pretty common and, and so... It was unclear why she, of all people, was being prosecuted. Um, the other, you know, being that the way she was detained was clearly on the basis of her having been surveilled and wiretapped uh, because there's no other way that they could have, the police could have been where they were when they were to detain her. Um, and so... There was a there was there was a, there was a really big um, movement among Moroccan liberals, but also Moroccan Islamists, uh, because she was being targeted partly because her uncle is a prominent Islamist, even though she isn't, uh, you know, condemning this, and and she may very well have not even had an abortion, um, and. Uh, but in the wake of her conviction, Slimani and another famous Moroccan uh, female director wrote a, a front page op-ed in the French newspaper Le Monde, sort of saying, we also break the law, you know, and calling for changes to the Moroccan law that criminalizes abortion and other uh, personal sexual behaviors and relationships like sex outside of marriage. And sort of taking this very dramatic stance in favor of personal freedom and sexual freedom, uh, the you know the, but then there was a backlash against that statement, and I knew a lot of people who didn't sign it, Moroccan feminists, uh, and and the reason for that was because they felt like it only talked about personal freedom. Uh, without talking about the larger political context, uh, without really focusing on the fact that this woman was arrested because she was a journalist, that this woman was, you know, arrested because the police in Morocco wiretaps everybody of interest and collects details on their personal life and uses it against them. Um, and Right, talking about it in the context of individual freedoms versus Islamism and tradition versus the context of uh, individual and collective rights in in a in a state in a, in a state that has existed historically in a state that you know yeah does many other things other than uh, th- that that the state was a part of this. Right. I think the the focus of the Tribune, like they don't sort of focus very strongly on on what state institutions are actually behind this. 
Mm. Um, they, of course, d I don't think mention really the monarchy, which is the single most powerful, most influential, you know, political actor in Morocco and could and who the king did eventually step in and pardon this woman, but that's not the same thing as like reforming the laws or reigning in the Ministry of Interior or making the judiciary independent or doing any of the things that the monarchy could do and that would prevent these kinds of abuses in the long term. Um, and and someone like Benjaloon had this kind of editorial where he just goes on and on and on about like you, like medieval fundamentalists, like you won't be able to drag Morocco, you know, uh, back into your bigoted Middle Ages. And it's like, who are you talking to? Like, she was arrested by the police. You know, they forced her to undergo a medical examination. Like, address them. Right. Who are the, who are the fundamental, there was no fundamentalist didn't like drag her out of the guy in OBGYN's office. It was this, like you say, it was the state. Right. And, and also, you know, to sort of add insult to injury that, that she is from a, a family of where, of, of a prominent Islamist, you, you know, so, so. <laughs> So yeah, well, she's she's from a very she's from a prominent family in many respects, and so she has like a cousin who's a human rights activist, and a num one uncle who's a newspaper editor, and another uncle who's a very prominent Islamist, and they clearly picked this young woman to send a message to the whole family. They, you know, they targeted her in this really disgusting way, uh, and I think they thought that because she was Islamist affiliated, that liberals wouldn't stand with her which is something they've done before. Like there are other cases of the authorities in Morocco finding out personal information about Islamists and, you know, leaking it to the media that's close to them and humiliating these people publicly to sort of say, oh, look what hypocrites they are. And, you you know, Tahar Benjaloun and Laila Simani do not write op-eds saying like, this is a gross invasion of personal privacy and you shouldn't be doing this when the people targeted are like members of the Islamist party. Right. And I, I can't remember who wrote the piece about, um, about Leila Slumani's relationship with the French state and, uh, and how she, she has sort of failed to criticize the arrests in the reef. And when she was asked about them said, um, oh, I haven't been following generally you know, I'm on board with individual freedoms. So you can just assume that, but I, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, I think there was a, there was a critical piece written before the Hajar Sunni case. Uh, Omar Brooksy, who is yes, a, that's the piece. a Moroccan journalist, had written something about these sort of, these public intellectuals and writers who, uh, because I think there was a, there's, there was a profile of Slimani that said, I think the title in the French magazine was Against All Tyrannies. Right. And his article was saying, okay, except for tyranny in Morocco, because you never talk about that. Uh, and this is not to pick on her. Like, uh, I, you know, she, there may be many reasons why a, a writer doesn't, you know, is doesn't want to speak out against all, you know, doesn't want to become or an activist or, or, or speak out against the government. But she is a very public figure who gives interviews all the time and, and does, you know, agree to sort of be on the cover of all these magazines, sort of like giving, 
you know, constantly talking about personal freedoms, uh, has written this book about sexual, you know, misery in Morocco, um, which was which was published in France, this sort of book of, of interviews with women in Morocco. Uh, but has, yeah, you know, there was no front page editorial in Le Monde about the the thousands of people who've been arrested uh, and harassed uh, in in retaliation for this peaceful protest movement in northern Morocco that kicked off and then was repressed a few years ago. Right. And, and although I, I, you know, so there was a, I, I kind of read through this long piece uh, in the New Yorker about lullaby. And one line that stuck out, stuck out to me was that the writer said she was kind of the literary analog of Emmanuel Macron <laughs> with, uh, and his, and his, um, policies. Now I don't know how, to what extent the author of that piece meant to extend that to, as sort of the neoliberal literary and, uh, uh, you know, she, she's meant to represent the French language, right? To represent French lit- francophone literature, um, Yes, but, I think she's been appointed to a position where she's an ambassador for francophonie, basically. Uh, so she's very much a figure who's, I mean, she's been very much embraced by the French cultural establishment. Um, there was also a profile of her in Lit Hub that had like a couple really revealing kind of, and 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 the way she is covered by the media and the way she is sort of talked about and framed is not always the, of course, something that a writer can control. Like, uh, it's, it's difficult, I think sometimes to, to resist the way you're framed, but the writer sort of called her, you know, she's a firebrand. Like, I'm not sure why she's a firebrand just because she's a Muslim woman. Right. A, a, like, or she's a woman from a Muslim country. We don't even know how Muslim she is. I mean, how, you know, what her religious personal religious beliefs are, but because she's from Morocco and she's Muslim and she wrote a book about sex, she's a firebrand. Right. Well, she also uh, has big hair and she's very pretty. She is very attractive, yes, and young and but she's and 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 then there were a couple of things in that, you know, so and then it says, you know, it said in that article something like, you know, her motto is to like speak the unspoken. Like that is so literally not true in every case. I mean, like Right. It, speaking about sex in Morocco, first of all, is not as unprecedented or as shocking as, you know, I guess French media or European media would have you believe because there's been Moroccan writers and novelists and sociologists and so on writing about sex for like decades. Uh, and right. Well, you know, historically, uh, <laughs> Arabic literature has not been shy about writing about sex and and in many cases, you know, it was I, – I don't know about the relationship between Francophone and Arabophone, but I know much more about, you know, it was the English language influence that came in and was like, you know, put a, put a sort of a more Victorian straitjacket on discussion of, of sex and literature. Yeah, I mean, I I don't uh, I don't see that the topic itself is uh, is evidence of, you know – I, I feel like the the treatment of it as super daring is based on this unspoken assumption that it's super daring for her because look where she comes from, you know, and it's just tiresome. 
to 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 frame it that way. And then the other thing that um, both Slimani and Benjaloon don't seem to have almost anything to say, although they have a big platform, is like they don't seem to speak about the personal freedoms of Muslims in France. Right. Which, which at this point are, are, are being like victimized by a really absolutely hysterical and particularly veiled Muslim women in France. Like their treatment is just insanely racist and, and completely out of control. And if you are, you know, a, an influential, uh, French Muslim with a platform, why aren't you saying anything about this? So they're they're silent about both Morocco and France on the issues where it would be really brave, I think, to say something. Well, definitely criticizing the, the king is a taboo. Uh, the cr- criticizing probably in, you know, let's say any king, but certainly the king here in Morocco is definitely a red line that if if someone were to do that very publicly, I, I would say they were a firebrand, sure. Yeah, that would be a real firebrand. And I'm not saying that anybody has to do that because because it's not, like you say, it's actually illegal. Like it's illegal to insult the monarchy. So, you know, you, there's real consequences. There's, but, but there are things that could have been said about the reef protests. You could express solidarity. You could, there are ways that you could have a position about some of these public issues when you are a public intellectual without, you know, without, I'm not standing in judgment and saying like, everybody needs to take these huge risks. Um, but, right. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not taking any myself. Right. No. And, 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 and I, as a journalist working there was always careful about saying things in a way that could not uh, be interpreted as illegal but you can still say things, I think. Right. Although, you know, knowing where the red line is and being as it's a, a line that's constantly in motion, probably everywhere, uh, you know, it's always safer to be very, very far away from it. But clearly this is the thing is like, I actually think, for example, Simani, I think she is uh, a very intelligent and a talented person. And she is someone who is well-meaning and who does want to speak, like take some risks and does want to speak out and does want to um, have an, a positive impact. Like she's not doing the, 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 the campaign that she has sort of like kind of led for like personal sexual freedoms. It's not something cynical. I think it's like a really deep felt uh, belief. Um, I just think it has these big blind spots. Yeah, I guess, you know, m- m- my personal bias is towards, um, you know, the establishing of collective rights and collective, I mean, obviously individual rights and individual freedoms, including sexual freedoms of all sorts need to be a a basis of, of having collective rights as well. Um, but you know, I, I, I tend to fall much more on, on that side and be sort of a little, um, I don't know, bristly about a, about a focus entirely on my middle class private personal rights yeah i mean i think everybody i mean one of the reasons that the reaction to the hajar Sunni case was really very strong across 
so many people I knew in Morocco, it is it it really it really did register to all the women I knew as such an incredible invasion of your body, of your dignity, um, for the state to target you this way. Um, I think there was, you know, huge solidarity against that that kind of be that kind of infringement of a personal right, right? Mm-hmm. Of an individual right. But then, of course, if you're going to have a bigger conversation about what needs to change, um, the problem is like is is in this sort of arbitrary application of the law is in the fact that like the elites in a lot of these countries have traded. They get to have individual rights and kind of lifestyle freedoms in exchange for accepting a kind of political acquiescence and for not speaking about a lot of things. And I think what's annoying with some of these sort of you know, figures of public intellectuals is um, is that they're cast, sometimes they don't even cast themselves, but they are cast by others um, as, um, you know, as being such like voices of freedom and so radical. And in fact, they, you know, they're not. And they are, in fact, kind of propping up the establishment. Um, and, and again, to get there, that lit hub piece about Simani, there's a quote where one of the French... Uh, some, some, I can't remember if it's a writer or somebody's interviewed about her and says, well, you know, her first book was was interesting and then good. And then when people went to interview her, she's very intelligent. And here was this young Muslim woman who could talk about the hot topics of the day, like Islam and fundamentalism, and she became a sensation. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, okay, first of all, Islam and fundamentalism do not feature in her books at all. Right, right. It's Which just, are just <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It's a very strange thing to ask her about, actually, at all. You know, you might ask her about um, her attitude towards craft and murder mysteries and childbirth and raising children, based on her books and, and her public profile. I certainly wouldn't ask her about Islam. Yeah, it, but it's because because that's what the French media wants to talk about, and they totally want to talk about the sexual oppression of Muslim women in Muslim countries. What they don't want to talk about is the discrimination that Muslim women face in France or the, like, rampant sexism in France. I mean, France has had its own, like, little Me Too movement, and I followed part of it in the press. And just recently they've had this scandal where this actress has come out and accused this director of basically, you know, assaulting her when she was between 12 and 15. I mean, there are disgusting stories about the sexism in media, in entertainment, in culture. Um, I just think there's certain topics that are convenient for everybody to talk about because they actually don't represent much of a challenge to the status quo. Right. But, you know, they're the sort of topics that can kind of fire you up, right? Because you're still talking about women's rights and personal freedoms, and and yet you're not challenging anybody in particular who might be able to punish you in some way. I also think it's weird in Morocco that, like, that op-ed got printed on the front page of a French newspaper. I mean, it's just, it's indicative of kind of the relationship between the two countries. But of course it would be healthier if that kind of an op-ed was published on the front page of the mass circulation Moroccan newspaper. You know, 
Right. Well, I mean, yes. It's about who your audience is, too. Because because right. it's only well, the Moroccan... You, right. So for for once, I would be a devil devil's advocate on their side, imagining that they're sort of uh, imagining that putting pressure internationally is what is going to influence this particular case. Right, because the French, because the Moroccan elite cares and the Moroccan establishment cares about what Le Monde publishes. But you're not having a big social debate that everybody gets to participate in. You're acknowledging the fact that this is a sort of intra-elite spat. Like, we're going to embarrass you, and so you're going to back down. Right. You know, uh, yeah, I'm we are it, not... Right. It's it's a very sort of focused on a single single issue, single case, not on, on having a, a societal discussion. And I basically agree with everything that's in the editorial. Like, I agree that those laws should be repealed. I think that, there, you know, it's true that the, 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 this combination of these, these terrible laws and then this, like, social hypocrisy means that people do not get to experience sort of uh, fulfilled, uh, trusting, uh, healthy sexual lives and sexual relationships. And it, and it makes tons of people miserable. And it, and it, is, it is a real problem. Um, and it's unfair, but also, you know, you have to talk about how these laws are there to be manipulated by the state to, as a form of social control. Right. As a selective form of social control. Absolutely. Right. Right. Who are we going to arrest? We're going to arrest the teenagers who get, are holding hands in the park while, like, Every rich guy and his mistress can hang out in bars and casinos and whatever. Like those guys, you know what I mean? We're going to arrest the prostitute, but not the customer. Like, right? you know, it's always the weak or the people who need to be targeted for some reason that will get, you know, targeted by these laws. Um, and I would just say one final thing on 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 these on these writers is also like Benjaloon in particular. He write he has written he writes like a weekly column in this website, uh, Le 360, which is is like a you know big online uh, site, and it is so connected, so obviously in many ways like connected, uh, you know, to the personal. Uh, personal secretary, in fact, of the king, but also to like business interests and to the interior because it publishes these leaks and these attacks on people all the time. It, it is a really, really reprehensible, uh, uh, ha you know, presence in the media <laughs> landscape. And to be writing there regularly, I find indefensible for like uh, a writer of his stature. Mm -hmm. Who clearly does? You know why is why why are you giving your legitimacy to a to an organ like this? Yeah, and so I, what is the what is the writer's responsibility and role in the public? Um, you know, I'm not going to make any big statements on that myself because I have not been put in such a position. But I I I did once ask Amjad once to to circle back to him. Uh, about the government's responsibility to supporting writing, uh, uh, for supporting writing and for supporting writers. And he flipped the question uh, around on me and said he thinks about the writer's responsibility as part of a society being like everybody else's responsibility in a society towards, you know, building a more open, honest, et cetera, society. 
so he he was a writer. Obviously, he paid for it in many ways. Um, who thought a lot about his public? It, it didn't sort of. Don, I mean, you, you, he wrote about many things, uh, including Petra. But um, but he thought a lot about what the writer's role was in creating a more open society and fair and just society. But his answer to you was like the writer has exactly the same responsibility as any other citizen. As any, as yes, as any, uh, all citizens have, have a responsibility um, to use the tools that, I mean, obviously Car- Carpenter has different tools at, at their disposal uh, than, than a writer does, but that, that it is um, not necessarily will be, will have the outcome the same, but, but that, but that a writer also has a responsibility to build their society like anybody else. I like that. And I think, I think, yeah, it, I don't think a, the writer needs to be sort of burdened or elevated with more of a responsibility than anyone else to like have an opinion about everything and have a position about everything and be particularly political or even particularly personally brave. Like, I feel the same way as you. Like, I I don't want to sound like I'm holding people up to a standard that I'm not sure I would meet myself. Right. You you know? Um, uh, But I think, but I think when you end up with a platform, almost whether you want it or not, um, you maybe do have a responsibility just to use it responsibly, even if that means not saying things. Right. Uh, You know, even if that means just like resisting sort of some of the ways in which you are pushed to uh, perform your role of public intellectual. Right. And, and, you know, I I can't imagine what sort of pressures are involved in being you know, in the spotlight so intensely. But yes, I think, I believe Amjad's point to me was that writers are not magic, you know. We can't put all the burden, <laughs> we can't put all think the we burden just, on writers. I think we just found the title of this episode. <laughs> writers are not magic. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> writers are not magic, but like everybody in a society should have integrity in what they do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not easy, but that's why one aims for it, right? Aims and fails, but but at least aims. Right, and tries again. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think um, that's a good place for us to maybe end for today. Absolutely. It was lovely talking to you. It was great talking to you, too. Um, well, uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Yep. I'll see you then. Or I won't see you, but I'll hear you then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.